coming. Just a minute. Just a minute. Um, put the kettle on. Oh, hi. <laughs> well, you're a proper customer, aren't you? Hmm? Oh, it's not important. I was just... I have a, a friend who stops by. They've been having kind of a rough time, and we've been meeting regularly for a while now. And I, I, I thought you might be them, but but you're not. You're you, and you're here at the museum, and I suppose you want a tour, so let's do that. Just a dime. Oh. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm happy to answer any questions you have, and we don't have to do the tour if you don't want to? Oh, well, a treasure, you say. I love treasures. Let me take a look. Hmm. <laughs> well, this is what we in the business of show and tell call a pitch card. Mm, well, performers uh, in circuses or sideshows or freak shows or dime museums might pass these out to patrons so that they don't have to keep repeating their stories over and over can be very hard to keep them straight, you understand, and sometimes they're supposedly from the darkest reaches of Africa and they only speak English, you know, things of that nature. Well, it is a pitch card for a tattoo lady, and they were very exotic back in the day. Mm-hmm, and on the back here, you'll see that it's, this is her legend, her personal story, that explains how she came to be the way she is, which is covered in tattoos. <laughs> well, it says here that she was taken captive by natives, and forcibly tattooed against her will. I, I find that very unlikely. I don't know many native tribes who were in the practice of tattooing George Washington on members of their tribe. And the tattoos themselves are real, but the story... This story does not belong to her. Mm, that's debatable. We own our own stories. They are what make us who we are. The story she's trying to tell about herself doesn't belong to her. It is a wonderful story. One of loneliness and isolation and finding family in the strangest places. About never quite belonging anywhere and always being looked upon as an outsider. They all seem to know. There's a certainty in what they tell you, and each other, and themselves, that arises from a place bound loosely to reality, and tightly to perception, projection, and truth be told, prejudice. The words they whisper are exotic and fearful. Apache, Yavapai, Mojave, Massacre, Savagery, Captivity. But the whispers seem like secrets conjured from hopeful gossip about the engagement of an old love being broken at the last possible moment. They say them a little too excitedly, the corners of their mouths struggling not to press up and away from the sad subject of their stories. Faltering tones of gravity sink into somber nets, but simmer into private titillation and pop like soap bubbles against a sheet spread wide to dry on a line. Yes, they all seem to know. And you're dying to know, too. In a little study, or parlor, or lecture hall, in Manhattan, or Michigan, or on the Mississippi, it's always the same, so that doesn't matter, she emerges against gaslight in a cascade of presupposition. 
Her wide skirts conceal small, careful steps, and they remind you of a horse's neck pulling forward against its reins, just as the force of another step catches up to its lead. It jerks back. She's reached her humble podium, and for the first time, you see her, and you see her mark for yourself. This light is not good. It flickers and casts shadows and gets tangled up in the blue lines tattooed on her chin. And as she tells you the story of the Oatman girls, and being the only Oatman girl, it seems right that she should tell it, the flickering lights make it impossible for you to separate what you saw from what you think you saw and what you think you're supposed to see. And as you try, maybe for the first time, in some small way, you've begun to understand what it must be like to be Olive Oatman. She begins a carefully rehearsed presentation, but you can hardly hear her over the sound of your thoughts, slipping and sliding over one another like so many fish in a basket. They are noisy and slick and hard to grasp, but when the light flickers just a certain way, you can see the lines on the face of Olive Oatman as a cruel brand. In this light, she is a slave, held against her will, against her own good judgment, by these simple ruffians who have no desire to do anything but harm to her. The lines are insidious, until the light flickers again, and then you see them differently. These lines, in this light, mark the face of a sweet, young pioneer girl, off to build a city of faith from sweat and God's abundance. You see a pattern of forced marches to strange places. You see lines that marked a long winding route out of the desert where she wandered like Moses, though not as long, before finding her way back to civilization and fulfilling a promise granted by grace. In this light, she is a pilgrim a martyr, saintly sacrificing Olive of the Mesas, who is the patroness of ink and patience, virtuous and pure. The light flickers again, and now those blue lines of cactus ink covering her chin can be nothing but tears. In this light, she is an orphan. She is a little girl child lost in the wilderness after her family was slain. She is a daughter without a mother or a father, a vestigial organ of a once thriving body of family, left with nothing to do now but get inflamed and demand attention. And just as the light grows a little brighter, you see these tears are for two families, her white family, slain by the Yavapai, and her Mojave family, from whom she was taken to return to society and be among the good people. The light flickers again, and now she is a reformed savage, a respectable woman in wide loping skirts with her hair arranged neatly atop her head, where once was only a bare-breasted wild woman who knew no better than to bathe in the rivers and to warm her body beside some noble native warrior in the cold desert nights. Was she a chief's wife, as some whisper? Did she leave children behind? Was she held against her will, marked as slave, and too ashamed to say it, was she reluctant to claim her birthright, preferring the company of a sun-brown second family to the distance and fragility of her estranged first? 
To be sure, these blue lines worn on the chin of a white woman during the reign of Queen Victoria do set her apart. She is the daughter of two worlds. The lines do tell the story of tears and loneliness and longing. And they tell the story of dances for warriors and the story of famine years and burying her sister who starved, whose death would have surely been a template for her own had she not been nursed through that hard season by her adoptive mother who fed her from a hidden store of grain so that she could live to tell this story of contradictions. The lines tell us that the Mojave wanted to find their daughter who was born to white strangers before becoming their kin in the afterlife. The lines tell us that she was accepted, that she endured a rite of passage, that she was a woman in the eyes of her tribe. The lines are straight and neat and beautifully rendered on her lily skin, and they tell us that she did not struggle as the needle marked her face. The thing the lines cannot tell us is the thing that we all want to know. The thing the lines cannot tell us no matter how the light dances and flickers, no matter which shadows are cast and which distortions manifest or fade away, that thing is, what do the lines on her chin tell Olive each time she sees her brilliant blue tattoo in the looking glass? It doesn't. Have you heard the story of- And written on the wall- And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old- There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American A world. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And this will be the 52nd week that we have been doing that. Does that number mean something? I mean, like, I feel like it's relevant in some way, like playing cards come in decks of 52 and something else has 52. What is it? A year. A year has 52 weeks and we've been doing this for 52 weeks. So this is our one year happy birthday to us. And you, you too, for sticking with us all this time. Happy birthday to us and you episode. And we are so excited to have been doing this for a year, and we have been up to lots of things. Mischief. Mayhem. Malarkey. (laughs) Madness. That's more accurate. We've been up to a lot of things behind the scenes, and we're kind of launching everything with our one-year anniversary. That's right. I have been a busy bee. I have been rebuilding our website. I have original art for every episode that we've ever done posted there. You can go check that out at justastorypod.com. Right there, you can find a page for each episode where you can stream the show, where you can find citations and resources and more information about everything. Most episodes will have more than 10 links to them. You'll find books that we discuss. Right. There's a link to the Pause Go Read It store. It's official. We have a store. (laughs) 
And there might be videos, images, and all of that. But, you know, speaking of the Pause Go Read It store, I think we should do another... Pause Go Read It prize? Of course we should. You know, for our half-year anniversary, we did a pause go read it prize and so anybody that reached out to us on twitter sent us emails or left a review gets put in the magical hat magical mystery hat of the pause go read it prize fame it has its own song so if you want to reach out to us in any of those fun forms over the next month you may do so and we will put your name in the magical mystery hat and at the end of the next month so the next four weeks we will announce the winner of the pause go read it prize and we will send you a book of your choosing from the pause go read it store whether that be severed The Birth of the Pill, Secret Life of Wonder Woman, Fiend, or Deviant, or any of the other fun nouns that Harold Schechter uses to describe serial killers in his titles. And we will send your prized selection straight to your home. And not stalk you, we promise. We are also going to endeavor upon starting another endeavor. We keep doing that. We keep doing that. But we're, we're starting a Patreon. All right. This has been requested by numerous people, and we're finally finally giving in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. We're actually doing this. We've been at it a year, and we take it pretty seriously, and it's not just a hobby, not just an excuse to drink a bottle of wine anymore. It is still an excuse. It is still an It's a reason. <laughs> not an excuse. And that should go live with this episode. On our Patreon page, the $2 level for the next month, you will receive a... Just a story sticker. Just a sticker. And our eternal gratitude. That's true. But at the $5 level, you will receive access to early release of the shows and also to our new mini episodes. Just the stories. Just the stories is going to be a short series in which we explore little known mysteries and strange happenings throughout history that have kind of become legend and we're going to try and use all primary source material and give you the stories as they happened or as they were portrayed to the public through media so check that out on patreon and there will be a link to it on our website there's also a level which has the greatest name in the history of patreon levels it's called all the freuds and at that level you get awesome stuff if you subscribe at the all the freuds level you will get to Come on the show. You get to help us pick a topic and do some research and come on and drink wine and hang out in our backyard via Skype for the entire recording process. You'll get to look behind the magical mystery curtain where we wear our magical mystery hats. I'm wearing my magical mystery pantaloons. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Don't tell that. (laughs) And last but not least, we have had lots of requests for merchandise. Merch! And we will also be having that available on our website. And all the artwork and designs for that will be done by yours truly. So enough of this behind-the-scenes stuff. Yes, enough of this not stories. Let's get back to the stories, the reason we do this show. You know, we, we've called this the Urban Legend Podcast is kind of the subtitle. Some of that is because it's a catchy name. It is catchy. People know what an urban legend is right off the bat. But an urban legend is really a another descriptor for modern folklore. That's really true. And that's where we've really kind of found our niche and found our home is in this idea of a multidisciplinary approach to modern folklore. And over the course of the year, we've definitely learned some things. 
Right. You know, folklorists don't just read the story and say, oh, that was interesting. They look into the story. They look at why the story is being told. They look at it in that social context and they look at the science behind it and they look at the sociology behind it, the anthropology. Psychology biology all the ologies all the ologies and we try to hit all as many ologies as possible until our brains want to explode or yours <laughs> or everyone's let's be honest that's why we have to wear our magical mystery hats just to keep our brains inside you know we've learned that as we're exploring all of these different ologies in history as well which is not an ology um, histrology oh, oh no no mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. no we've learned that the only way it works is if every time we're getting stuck we stop and say okay we've got to go back to the story and we use the story as the backbone of every episode we're not just like here to pontificate on our personal opinions of things we like to really flesh out the themes of stories and really give you anchor points that come kind of organically from the text so we feel like that's really helped us develop a format and really helped us develop a mission statement everything comes back to the story which is hilarious because the name of our show is just a story which seems so flippant and dismissive but they are sort of our gospels as we move through each episode well they are and because you know as we often state it's like It's our stories that say who we are. They say who we are as humans because they define our society. They help define our culture. And it's something that's been important in humanity since the dawn of humanity. That's so, so true. And like, as I was putting the website together, I had an opportunity to look at all of the old episodes and look at what we'd done. I was very proud of it. I was proud of our work and I was proud of our audience. And I was really, really grateful and thankful to have people who've been receptive to this kind of in-depth discussion and, you know, who like the analysis that we do. And it's just been a very rewarding process overall. What's your favorite episode we've done? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're putting me on the spot. I am. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this. I don't know. We've had some fun ones. I mean, people often ask, like, where do I start? And a lot of times I'll point to uh, the Deal with the Devil episode is a lot of fun or to the Sleep Paralysis episode. And a fun thing we've done on the website is kind of categorize these because we have... A lot of different directions we go in, you know, some episodes that are very focused on true crime, some episodes that are very historical, like our Anastasia episode, which was through the roof popular. But like the two episodes I mentioned, people consider them scary episodes. Right. Paranormal. And they are. (laughs) I'm often intrigued that people say our show is, is spooky. Spooky, creepy. We get creepy, creepy a lot. Or scary. Scary. We get scary too. And I think it's only scary if you want it to be. Right, because we only spend so much time on the actual like spook factor paranormal things, but then we really go into the real stuff. And how these imagined ideas can kind of permeate the real world, what you might actually encounter. And I think that we sort of destroy the safe little bubble people put around themselves in doing that. Like, it's like, oh, no, you, you might not be possessed, but you might have seizures and a specific part of your brain and think you see angels and demons, which is kind of scary. Right. Or like the idea of La Llorena. Right. We talked about maternal filicide for. Ever, which my search history, y'all, my search history. <laughs> but you know, I do want to take a second to thank all of our listeners, like you were saying earlier, for just contributing. I can't believe what wonderful responses we've had and how many volunteers we've had to come on the show and tell stories. 
it's been such an incredible experience to hear people really recount these legends like you would over coffee. You know, they call the Urban Legend Hotline and are like, hey, I just had to tell you about this thing. Which, if you want to call the Urban Legend Hotline. That number is 512-222-3375. And we have completely built episodes around things people have called in about. The Elmore Rider was one. I was so excited to get to use that with the Headless Horseman. And I feel like that episode went in some really fun directions. That was a recent one we did. Yeah, and so you can reach out to us through the phone line, or you can email us at justastorypod at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on Twitter at justastorypod. And actually, we've done episodes around emails, too. For example, the Night Marchers episode came in through email. Very true. And that was something I never, ever, ever would have thought of doing. And I absolutely loved how that one came out. I was so interested in what we learned, because I didn't know anything about it no i feel like when people call in or reach out in any way we get these windows into these beautiful cultures that we are isolated from and it's really transportive to spend the amount of time that we do researching things that are so foreign and finding the relatable portions and finding the universal themes like when we did the night marchers episode i i learned so much that's probably the episode that i learned the most doing Probably so. And, you know, we aren't just sticking with American urban legends or, you know, this kind of American European legends. You know, we do want to start branching out. And so if you have any ideas, definitely reach out to us. You know, we talk about myths. We talk about these stories and how they and how they how they define us. And I think we've picked a really interesting idea for this week's episode doing something a little bit different. And that we're definitely always going to stick with a story. We have to have a story. It's kind of in the name. It's what we do. But as we say, back to the story at hand. So now that we've just spent a good while creating our story and telling you what's happened to us over the last year, we want to look at the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and how we tell them to other people. Right. We started this week's episode with a little mini-sode of our other show, Audio Dime Museum. That's a fun little show that we do on the side when we have extra time. It's an audio drama that looks at interesting historical stories. And this is a very interesting story. And something I think that you'd probably gather from listening to the show that we are very interested in is like that circus, sideshow, freak show culture that existed around the turn of the century. And within that culture, there was a subculture of the tattooed ladies. They were their own genre within the sideshow. So two of the earliest tattooed ladies were Nora Hildebrandt and Irene Woodward. Both of them were tattooed by a prominent tattoo artist named Martin Hildebrandt. You might notice that he has the same last name as Nora There had been tattooed men in the circuses, sideshows, for over 80 years. But the idea of a tattooed lady... Oh my. Oh my. Combined exotic stories with a little bit of skin. A little bit of something, something. Something, something. A little something extra. Mm. There had to be a story to go along with these women. Always, There always has to be a story. And Nora's story was very tragic. She said that she'd been captured by the Lakota Sioux and she was forced to be tattooed. Her father, who was witnessing this torture being done to his daughter, this barbaric tattooing, finally said, just kill me so that they would stop with their crazy tattooing of his precious, precious Nora. But in reality, she was tattooed in New York by her common law husband, the aforementioned Martin Hildebrandt, one of the first 
shop tattooist in the United States. And she toured with Barnum and Bailey for a short time, but she was eventually replaced by Irene Woodward because Irene Woodward, word on the street has it at least, was prettier. Oh, Tattoo girl throwdown. I think that's on like every roller derby agenda ever. Irene also had a tale that came with her tattoos. She said that her father tattooed her to pass the time while they were stuck in a cabin before he was killed by Native Americans who were frightened by her tattoos and released her back into the wilderness unharmed. Oh, that was so nice of them. It was kind, wasn't it? But the nice part about being a tattooed lady is that you could make 35 to $100 a week. But clerical workers at the time were making around 22 so you see there's a little bit more pay in being a tattooed lady. Oh, there's definitely a little motivation there to do something out of the norm. I mean, these, these stories are crazy. They're obviously ridiculous. I mean, that... Native Americans came and stole them away and tattooed them. Against their will, while they trembled in fear at the savages. You gotta give it some oomph, Jacob. Sorry. All right. Well, it would seem that way. It would seem like this is all some preposterous fiction cooked up by, you know, a sideshow talker. P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum hoodoo. Hokum. But it's not. Well, it was for them. It was for them. Them, that's completely fictitious. No one was, no one's father died. No one's father died. Well, someone's father died. Olive Oatman's father died. Olive Oatman? She and her family were Mormons, and they were going out to settle the West, as you do. And along the way, they ran into some Native Americans, as you do, and her family was massacred. She was subsequently taken prisoner by the Yavapah in the 1850s. She was adopted by the Mojave people, who gave her a traditional tribal tattoo. When she was ransomed back at age 19, she became a celebrity, and of course... People noticed the prominent chin tattoo she had. It was on her face. There was no covering it. So she's the subject of the opening story. Right. And she's also the subject of the book, The Blue Tattoo. It's a fabulous read. You should go check it out. You should probably pause. Go read it. And join us again when you're done. Right. And there are these fantastic photos of her in just this like Victorian wear with the tribal chin tattoo. And so that tribal chin tattoo was not necessarily forced upon her, right? Well, there, it's the subject of much debate. Okay, so one thing you have to know about Olive Oatman is that the world was quite intrigued by the idea of her. A white woman among the savages. Right, yes. That was such a romantic notion at the time, because you have the noble savage idea floating about, you have this idea of manifest destiny floating about, and she came to kind of personify the American experience in the West. And so her story was co-opted, reformatted, stripped, built from scratch. Her name was peppered in other people's biographies. Everyone who had anything to do with the American West kind of wanted her to be their mascot. So the truth is really hard to get down to. It could have been a completely cool thing that happened. It could have been like they kind of made her do it. Much debate around that. Right. This tattoo was a symbol of being part of the tribe. And it also was a symbol that would allow her to enter into the afterlife. So I find it hard to believe that it was forced upon her. Right. I think that when she reintegrated into society, she did so more smoothly than other people who chose to remain 
or who wished to remain among their captors because she was not the only person that was kidnapped. There were other women that wanted to stay with the tribe that were kind of forced away from them and things like that. And she came back pretty willingly. And, like She never really weighed in. She was not much of an advocate for anything. But in all of her speaking engagements, she had sort of a liberal ideology that was obviously very influenced by her time away from Mormonism. She had very progressive ideas about gender and sexuality and things like that when she would speak, but it was never done with the same agenda as like the suffragettes who were contemporaries. And so her story was obviously kind of appropriated by the tattooed ladies of the freak shows and sideshows and circuses. And they took that story to make their appearance, the idea of this exotic tattooed woman, even more interesting. Because it was already such a romantic story. And then you have this very visual companion to go along with it. But the idea that women had to be forced to be tattooed started to fade over time. Right. Like, as you said, you know, the, the money was good. This was an interesting lifestyle. This was something you could do and make more money. Right. Like with Anna Mae Burlingson, who was a domestic worker at the time that she met her husband, who was a tattoo artist, a man by the name of Red Gibbons. And after a bit of marriage, she decided that she would let Red tattoo her with religious imagery. Only. Right. She had like Botticelli's Annunciation and Michelangelo's Holy Family. By 1919, she was traveling and performing under the name Miss Artoria. And she worked until 1981 traveling with sideshows. Isn't that amazing? I love it. I mean, what are you going to do when you're old and have all those tattoos? Travel with a sideshow, baby. So there was a certain amount of sex appeal to the woman being tattooed, right? They came back with these stories of danger and pain, and they were allowed to show more skin than they would have normally been allowed to, especially in 1919. Right. Don't you go back into the freak show tent and then they would pull a quick one on you and be like, for 50 cents more, you can go in this tent and you can see all of the tattooed lady. <laughs> and you can also buy some pitch cards. A pitch card, you say? What's a pitch card? Well, it was something that either would be given out or sold by the performers. Mm-hmm. And it would have like images of them, little snippets of their story, such as an image of a semi-scantily clad, now it would be considered scantily clad, um, tattooed lady. And it would say like, kidnapped and forced to be tattooed by the Lakota Sioux. <laughs> Ah, bullshit cards, you're saying. Bullshit cards. But you keep these in your nightstand for when your wife's away, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm familiar with the exercise. And of course, they were only sold to men. Fine. I'll just have to go procure my pictures of tattooed ladies elsewhere. Thank you, madam. I say good day. But women were attracted to them. I think that's an interesting point. Women were very fascinated with them because it, it seemed to sort of embody this idea of a woman who had taken control of her body. You know, it gave women this idea that you could do what you wanted with your body in a very literal way. Right. This was just at those stirrings of the original feminist movement and Margaret Sanger and the suffragettes. Well, actually, Lyle Tuttle, who is a tattooing legend, credits women's liberation as one of the forces behind the tattoo renaissance that we're experiencing. Right, I think that's so interesting that that idea of taking over your body and being able to make your own choices about it. Right. Isn't that a crazy idea? It's a crazy idea. But, you know, we talked about Native American tattooing, and tattooing itself has such an interesting history because it has been involved in so many cultures around the world. And there's this amazing researcher, and he is 
like who I want to be in my next life. <laughs> no, me too, actually. So we're going to have to fight over it. But he is like bees knees cat's pajamas cool. Like I really like this guy. And his name is Lars. His name's Lars. Shut up, Lars. You're too awesome, Lars. But Lars Krutek is a PhD anthropologist who studies tattooing. Studies tattooing around the world. He said shows on television about tattoo hunting and looking at tattoos in different cultures. And highly suggest Google him. You know, we'll have links to his site and some of his lectures on our website. And, you know, he did do some research on North American tattooing, of course. And, you know, he describes tattooing. And this is kind of a theme that goes throughout the ancient world of tattooing, that tattoos can be used to identify your tribal designation, to relate social accomplishments. They can be used as medicine. And they can be used as symbols to repel evil. There's been a renaissance on tattooing just in general, but especially among Native Americans and trying to use these old tribal tattoos and try to kind of almost reclaim their culture through it. I think that's a pretty effective way to do it, honestly. It's a practice. It's not just the idea of the symbol. It's actually some of the methodology and like the locations and, and who does it and who does it and, and like ritual. where on the body it goes mm-hmm. and things like that. It's a very physical enactment of culture. No, it definitely is. And in this, he talks about how it has kind of faded away over time and that occurred you know around the turn of last century for a lot of reasons there are so many reasons you know of course they were used for markers of warriors you know used to show accomplishments in battle so this is like when you like when planes have little x's on the sides of them kind of no it was they would do that they would also get tattoos to mark if they were wounded in battle purple hearts right or other great accomplishments like medals of honor and things like that so this is like This is a physical alteration of the body done to mimic what we use, like, metals for now. Right. No, definitely. But you have this decrease in the use because the idea of that kind of, like, warrior Indian that comes into the night to take your women and children, you know, was so pervasive. And then they were taking all of these people and forcibly incarcerating them and putting them on reservations and markings like that would just target you but also you have the genocide of the people of course and illness that destroyed countless amounts of native americans and then you have the boarding schools i have a problem with indian boarding schools i don't know if you know this I think everyone has a problem with Indian boarding schools. I research serial killers. I research moms that kill their kids. I research all this stuff. But like when I research the Indian boarding school movements and things like that, that is one time I will like sit at my desk and cry. Right. We touched on on an episode of Audio Dime Museum. We were faster than horses. The title of it. It's actually our most popular episode because that I the. Indian boarding schools are, I think, one of the most shameful, shameful, sad parts of our history as americans that and slavery those are two big ones right there you know those are the two like two big heavy hitters of course (laughs) (laughs) there are others but uh yeah it's something we try to sweep under the rug in our official liturgy should i call it no it's so true like slavery everyone knows about it everyone knows it's terrible you're not gonna find anyone well you'll find like that one guy on twitter (laughs) fuck that guy (laughs) fuck that guy (laughs) everyone kind of knows that it's terrible but the Indian boarding schools, when we were researching it, I thought it was so interesting, sad, depressing, worrisome, all of those adjectives, that I 
had a lot of trouble finding people talking about it in a negative light. Yeah, there's still a lot of really positive spin applied to it because it was the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, was very, very keen to manage that. For those of you that do not know what the Indian Boarding School movement is. It was a systematic removal of children from reservations to boarding schools located miles and miles away from their family where they were taught how to survive in white society. The markers of their tribes and customs were forcibly removed. They were kind of forced into cookie-cutter molds and... Given new names, given new religion. Given numbers. Yeah, in some places. There was a ton of abuse that went on there, and it really did permanently damage the amount of knowledge of their own culture that these people had access to and it's taken a long time but people are really genuinely trying to rebuild some of those cultures canada has done such a better job canada does <laughs> a better lot a better I, job a lot i mean they had in inborn schools they had this terrible thing at the same time but now they'll talk about it and there's an excellent documentary on it about many of the first nations children being taken away that is just heart-wrenching and as you said this culture was taken away from them as well because they were taken away from their people their family they were taken away from the gatekeepers of information and as you look at it from tattooing that was one of the traditions that was taken away. They didn't grow up seeing that. They didn't grow up knowing what it meant. And they also didn't grow up getting them. Right. And I do have to note here that Canada kind of has to talk about it because there's a huge problem with racial discrimination against First Nations women, especially in Canada. There are so many missing First Nations women. We might cover that on an episode eventually. It is incredible. And I think it's kind of reached critical mass and that's around the same time that people started noticing that is around the same time that canada was like okay we got to talk about the shit we did just to interject well and well there's also a huge cultural movement to talk about it but back to the tattoos <laughs> sorry i just don't want canada getting away scot-free you see that's right canada but different tribes used tattoos in different ways it rarely was purely just ornamental although it did occur a lot of tribes in a large area of the United States had this kind of Manitou concept. And that's that guardian spirit. Okay. Kind of ideas people know about, like the vision quest. They would have the spiritual protector. And one of the ways that they would honor the spiritual protector and also incorporate that protection into themselves was by marking their body with that image. Almost like a totem on your body? In a way. Okay. Um, the Inuits, there's beautiful tattooing that was done on women to kind of increase feminine beauty it was these facial tattoos and the tattoos were done according to rank and status in life they're ready to marry bear children are specific titles or positions and they were these complicated line work that was done on the face across the chin and the upper cheek area mm -hmm. and how it was done was with a needle and thread thread yeah that's really interesting. Yeah, and they would kind of just dip it in soot. It was different things in different places. And sew it into them almost. And by going subdermally, would implant that ink. They really are beautiful. They're very soft looking. Is one thing that I find striking about those visually. Is It looks 
feminine. You know, it looks like what you would traditionally ascribe to, you know, like soft and curvy and pretty. Right. And, you know, they had that idea, those northern tribes, that these elaborately tattooed men and women were allowed passage into the afterlife. That's how you got passage into the afterlife. Right. So it is your ticket to ride. For sure. Okay. And, you know, we talked about those markings related to a warrior's accomplishments and there was an interesting idea that our friend Lars talks about Lars sigh sigh he's kind of dreamy he is (laughs) (laughs) and he talks about how they would use these kind of as signatures and they would even sometimes inscribe it on clubs and would leave this club at the site of a dead enemy or at a battle and this would kind of be a like boasting measure it's signing your work yeah, no, definitely. It's a signature. It's a signature. It's saying, I was here, I did this. This club would be inscribed with the same symbols and that were used to mark the warrior's physical body. And he earned those designations and symbols through his acts of... Lots of other traditions. Just to mention a few, there are so many. Like I said, Lars has a book on it. You can pause. Go read this like $80 textbook. <laughs> <laughs> Come back in six months. We'll see you. But a few interesting ones, like the Cree, the men would tattoo their entire body over many years, but there was a limited amount of tattooing that could be done for women. They would only have these minimal lines kind of across their face. And the Pacific coastal regions, which it seems like that area had a very prominent tattooing tradition. The Yurok tribe, it was actually more common among women than men. And they would start by getting a line below their chin when they were five. Oh my God. I cannot imagine trying to make our five-year-old sit still for a tattoo. He can't even take a haircut. I know. (laughs) He would have a zigzag line. (laughs) They would get a new parallel line every five years. And the Yuma tribe, also in that area, would decorate their faces with these exquisite patterns, indicating family status, ties to the community. And the warriors would decorate themselves to give a fierce appearance. And again, it was customary in the tribes to have that idea of having to have these tattoos to enter the afterlife. And then I have to mention the Mojave tribe. Ah, of Olive Oatman fame, the Mojave. That's a callback for those of you who are paying attention. They tattooed using the ink from a blue cactus plant, and it was performed at the time of puberty as an important rite of passage. Both the women and men of the tribe wore complete body tattoos as part of religious ceremonies, and they were believed to bring good fortune and entry into the afterlife, and they were also protective. This is kind of where I go back to that story where I'm like, I do I don't think it was forced upon her. No, it seems like it was done at the appropriate time. Like, she was 19 when she was returned, so she would have been going through puberty. Timing works out right. You know, I I have to say that I believe it was a symbol of acceptance. And Well, there there are rumors that she was married and had um, children, even. there There are so many rumors. So many rumors. So many rumors. It's an urban legend. But so many pre Columbian, I hate that term, by the way. How about indigenous? But it's How like, about Americans? Well, no, because you're like you want to say the time was before Europeans got there. How about back in the good old days? Let's make America great again. Kick the white people out. I can say that. <laughs> Throughout Central and South America, you have tattooing, especially like Peru and Chile. The Mocha civilization used as a mark of rank. Originally, they thought it was like a patriarchal society. But then in 2006... What do you think they found? 
a woman. A woman. A woman. Why is this woman like from Transylvania? <laughs> the guy who figured it out's from Transylvania. I don't know. Okay. But they found her completely covered in tattoos and everything they know about this culture says that, that means she is top dog the boss lady hbic head bitch in charge sure <laughs> that's what i call myself in my head okay <laughs> you see been wondering why you sign things <laughs> now you know i was like what's a hibbic <laughs> but you know other supporting evidence that they found her with war clubs 23 spear throwers and a strangled teenager. Oh, well, that's definitely status right yeah, there. That's some it, sacrifice. Yeah. As I kind of mentioned earlier, tattooing has been around forever. Yeah. At least 5,000 years. Since Otzi. 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 We've talked about Otzi before, and he is our Neolithic Iceman. We're probably going to do a whole Otzi episode one day. Don't worry. We'll talk about the curse and everything. On him, they found this distribution of dots and small crosses. As in tattooed dots and small crosses? So I'll tell you where they are. What do you think they were? We talked about some of the kind of ideas of why people would get tattoos. But these tattoos were not necessarily in visible places. They were small. They were located on like ankle and on the knee and on the spine Sounds like acupuncture. Kind of is. They think that it was medicinal. That's so interesting. And here's a fun side note. Brad Pitt has a tattoo of Otzi. Is that that ironic? Is that irony? I don't know. (laughs) I want him to know that Otzi was the first person in recorded history to have tattoos. So he got a tattoo of Otzi to be ironic. I want that to be the reason, but I don't think it is. There is historical evidence of tattooing in so many different cultures around the world. Definitely seen in Egypt, often more in women. What would they have tattooed? Well, it was small, like, dot patterns. Okay. And one famous mummy found, a woman from Thebes from Dynasty Eleven, whose tomb identifies her as Amunet, a priestess of Hathor. And she bore parallel lines in her arms and thighs and an elliptical pattern below the navel in the pelvic region and they've also seen this on lots of other female mummies that sounds like fertility shit kind of is kind of is and so of course originally let's let's get back back in time all right let's get in the way back all right we are back in the turn of the century and we're british or something okay and we're tomb raiding boulder dash <laughs> my dear sir yes my dear sir hand me that dead mummy <laughs> here you go sir let's bring her to britain Oh, look at this. Oh, what is that? It is a woman. It is a woman. She has tattoos near her... her woman parts. Her privy parts. <laughs> privy parts. Yes, I see that. I see those tattoos near her privy parts. She must be a whore. She must be a whore. Whore. Whore, mommy. <laughs> Let's bring her to England where we will we'll take this culture to be ours forever. We'll put her in a museum and charge people a penny each to look upon the whore, mommy. Balder dash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I seem to have a little cough. <laughs> I think I'm dying. <laughs> Too bad we can't read this inscription. And so they couldn't read the inscription about the curse of the prostitute mummy because, first of all, she wasn't a prostitute mummy. She was a high priestess. And they also did not know that these actually were fertility symbols or protective symbols. Okay. Protecting against fertility? Because <laughs> I'll get one. That's what you might want. <laughs> but no, protecting against the problems of childbirth. Okay. Or like well, to have a you know have a happy, healthy birth of a child. I think that's a pretty good reason to get a tattoo, especially back in those days. But tattooing is something that 
again, is seen all over the world. You see the Anu people of Japan, and they have these really interesting tattoos around their mouths. And they look almost like what you would think of like a, like a Joker smile or like a, like a cartooned like mustache. And people think it's related to the ideas of these kind of mustaches as being and the men as being signs of like societal markers. I think it was kind of another beauty symbol. Mm-hmm. And they really are absolutely beautiful. Go Google it or come to our website. Check it out. A-I-N-U. But whenever you think of Japanese tattooing, what do you think of besides? Little Japanese symbols that don't mean what you think they mean. On Barbie. On Barbie? On Barbie. Little Japanese symbols that actually mean death to all of your family on Barbie. The tradition of Japanese tattooing is an ancient one. And there were really repressive laws back in the day. Only the most royal of royals could wear these beautiful ornate kimonos. And this just made everyone angry. Yeah, status symbols generally tend to make everyone angry. That's kind of the point. And so people started getting these ornate tattoos over their bodies to kind of represent these kimonos that they were not allowed to wear. But they would, you know, they would hide it. It was underneath their clothing. And it was a very subversive practice. And the government actually outlawed it in 1870. Which made it very alluring indeed, I'm sure. Yeah, tattooists went underground and the art just flourished. And now we see this art continued with the Yakuza. Oh my god, they're coming for your pinkies. Call back to like the first episode. <laughs> Before we continue with this, you know what it makes me think of? What? The Tignon. What is that? You're going to need some more information. Okay, fine. Um, So in New Orleans, colonial New Orleans, Mm -hmm. there was a huge kind of competition between the Creole women, so women of mixed descent who had African-American backgrounds as well as French and Caucasian. Spanish. And and everything. Kind of my background. Kind of that. And the white French society ladies. And they got real tired of losing their husbands, at least for an afternoon or possibly longer, to these beautiful women. But so there was an ordinance passed that required women to wear, women of color or Creole women, to wear a tignon or a head covering whenever they went into public. And so in response, they created these gorgeous turbans. They're just beautiful. If you look back, like uh, there's a very famous portrait of Marie Laveau where she's wearing one. And it was like, oh, you're going to make us cover our head. We're going to cover them like this and we're going to look awesome. But the Yakuza now still embrace these kind of tattooed body suits. And a lot of people do it in the traditional manner. What is that? Not using an electric tattoo machine. Oh, that sounds painful. (laughs) Oh, it is. I mean, they have these elaborate designs, take long periods of time, very painful. But that pain, that ritual, is used to show the allegiance of their beliefs. Right, they're forged in the fire. Exactly. And they'll incorporate different symbols that represent their character traits or what they want to be. Um, Such as, like, you see a carp frequently, and that would be strength and perseverance, or something like a lion could represent courage. I thought lions were cowardly. I'm not even responding. (laughs) But to move to the Western world. Do we follow the yellow brick road? Yes. No, we follow the Roman road. Oh, goodness. Okay. Yes, I accept Jesus Christ and I've heard some say that. Okay, sorry. (laughs) I've answered the door one too many times, folks. But in the British Isles, there was a group of people called the Picts, and they were some of the first inhabitants, and they were tattooed among both sexes. And these were pre-Christian, Celtic, and Germanic people. The term Breton 
comes through a very complicated etymology. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> but it means like people of design. And they're even described by the one and only Julius Caesar in his book five of the Gaelic Wars. What does old Julius say about him? He just describes them. Oh, he says they're PED and they have lots of designs on them. I think he says I slaughtered them. Oh, well, as Julius is wont to do, Julius was kind of a dick. Just putting that out there. Just putting it out there. <laughs> just... We don't need any evidence. But the idea of tattooing in this time was, in a way, considered for the others, for the barbarians. Right. The Greeks used the word stigma to describe tattooing. Is that why we have, like, stigmata? Right. Piercing? And the idea of stigma? The idea of stigma is bad. It is something that is like a visible marker that separates you from the group. It's deviant. Right. They used tattooing to mark the deviants. The only people that they tattooed were the prisoners and slaves. Okay, and these are the Greeks? Yes. The enlightened people? Yeah. Okay, so they were like, Catching people and tattooing them and being like, I own you now. Well, they would use it to mark people that had done terrible crimes. Okay, that stick that sticks around. Yes, definitely. But it is stated by the Greek writer Herodotus and four fifty BC that these others, these Scythians, used tattoos as a mark of nobility, and not to have them was a testimony of low birth. Hmm. So we know that groups around the Greeks were using this as a nobility symbol, but the Greeks were having none of that. Those mm-hmm. were the others, those were the barbarians. And this idea transmitted to the Romans, who they really were the ones that used it to mark criminals and slaves. Like I said, Julius. Julius Caesar, kind of a dick. I mean, you've got this like visible sign of your social role. They would do the tattoos on their forehead. That is like, oh God, that's so like prepubescent boy at a slumber party drawing a dick on someone's face. That's all I can think of like, while they're asleep in Sharpie. Sometimes they would write the name, the tattoo, the name of the emperor or the Caesar, or they would write like their crime. But good old Constantine comes around. What does he do? In the 4th century. Mm-hmm. We knew Constantine is. Constantine, he's a Christian guy. Right. And he outlawed it. Outlawed the tattooing of people? No, just tattooing on the face. Okay, well, he said, progress. Tiny steps. He said, the face, which has been formed in the image of the divine beauty, will be defiled as little as possible. So just do it on their hands or calves or stuff. Rome wasn't built in a day, you see. That was a cornball joke. By the way. (laughs) You're welcome. There actually is some evidence that Roman soldiers, after seeing the barbarians and their markings, kind of took it on as well. So there's some evidence that Roman soldiers were actually like, that's kind of cool. They're like, that dude looked badass. He scared the shit out of me (laughs) before I slaughtered him. But the idea of tattoos as punitive continued through the Middle Ages. And you can see how that close tie with criminality and deviance is so deeply rooted in Western culture. Yeah, I was doing some research for the, an episode of Dime on The Strangest Stranger, and I looked into the branding practices. And eventually, they were deemed a little barbaric. So around like the 1700s, they stopped doing it on the first offense, and then they would do it on the second offense. You would get your hands branded. <laughs> 
Not even three strikes. No. Very literal because it was you know, mainly the Brits doing it at that point. And it was like a T for theft or a M for murderer or whatever. Like whatever it has you're to be literal. Yeah, it was very literal. It was branded on their hand, whichever was their dominant hand. As humanity just loves contradictions. Yes, we do. This is what we do. While we had the criminals being tattooed, also during the Crusades, and while people were making pilgrimages to the Holy Land, tattoos were very popular among the pilgrims among the pilgrims and the crusaders oh, okay crusaders would get a jerusalem cross to signify that they were of christian they were catholic and christian because it was only catholicism <laughs> and catholic by default motherfuckers sorry <laughs> is there a hand motion yeah, yeah there's actually four the cross, yes. making a cross, yeah. same as making the sign of the cross. <laughs> and she's not funny. I'm not. I'm not at all. But also, pilgrims would get it just to mark this sign. Like, they had gone to Jerusalem and seen where Jesus was crucified or whatever. Yeah, born something. I don't know. Yeah, it was like getting a t-shirt. Yeah, it's like a t-shirt. Yeah, cool. But there's this great article a while back on Atlas Obscura, which is an excellent website. It's by Anna Felicity Friedman, and she went and talked to and interviewed this family in Jerusalem's old city, Razuk's, and they have a shop called Razuk Inc., and this family has been tattooing pilgrims for 700 years. I don't know of many people in America who can say that their family's been doing anything for 700 years. That's amazing. Some of the Native Americans we talked about. Right. Well, yes. That's about it. Yes. Wow. 700 years. Same location? Different location. Okay. All right. Bye. And they actually still use these centuries-old stamps that were used just hundreds of years ago to outline a tattoo. So these are like woodcutting almost. Like no, kinda... they are, yeah. And like back in the day, they would just stamp it on you and then tattoo it. And nowadays, they use carbon paper. Yeah. Like you use in any tattoo shop when we got tattoos and stuff. So it's just really interesting that they're still doing this and they're still using this and they have such a pedigree. That is, that's a hell of a pedigree. There's photographs in the article of the, of the family's kind of lineage, their ancestors, and and in each kind of shadow box photo of the last four generations, it has the instrument they use to tattoo. You know, they, they use modern tattooing technique now, other than using the stamps. But, you know, back in the day, they did the old school, you know, kind of hammer and pin needle kind of thing. Stick and pokes. Yes. <laughs> what a strong connection they must feel to that place and what they do. It's just fantastic. I, just, I want to go and get one so I know, badly. I know. Let's go. Let's go to the Holy Land. Let's go. Let's make a pilgrimage to get a tattoo. <laughs> That's pretty much why I'd be going. <laughs> but tattooing re-emerged in the Western world during the 18th century. So remember good old James Cook? The one that was cooked and eaten? Not really. No, not really. Okay, so we talked about Cook on the Night Marchers episode. He was the first white guy, I think is the official term, to come to the Hawaiian Islands. I think it's white dude. White dude, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't mean to disrespect. Okay. So Cook was the first white dude to make his way to the Hawaiian Islands. Right, and he did a lot of exploring in that kind of South Pacific area mm -hmm. and discovered places, another term I hate. I know, it's just like, okay, yeah. All right, so white dude discovering things as per usual. But he described Polynesian tattooing and specifically the Tahitian tattooing. To quote from his log, both sexes paint their bodies to tattoo as it is called in their language. 
This is done by inlaying the color of black under their skins in such a manner as to be indelible. This method of tattooing I shall now describe, as this is a painful operation, especially the tattooing of their buttocks. It is performed but once in their lifetime. So that is kind of where the term tattooing, which actually means like to tap, mm-hmm. it can actually be mm-hmm. used to describe drumming. Okay. In the area as well, by the native people, the actual people that speak the language. Uh, right. Interestingly enough, many of his men got to towels <laughs> <laughs> while they were there, including his aristocratic science officer and expedition botanist, Sir Joseph Bank. You're so jealous of Joseph Bank. I know that in another lifetime, I would be a naturalist. And be on a ship. Yes. With a sketchbook. And get a tattoo. <laughs> That's exactly what you would do with yourself in a past life. So his aristocratic science officer wore his tattoo back to jolly old England? Of course. And did that have any influence on the culture? Well, you know, it brought it just back into the culture. The area that they explored, tattooing was such a intricate part of society. And one of the areas, the Maori tribe, has been doing this for thousands of years these are the people these beautiful intricate facial tattoos each tattoo design is very unique to that person and conveys like very specific information about their status their rank their ancestry their abilities and it even kind of became a form of like an identification and just as we saw with some of the native american tribes using this as a signature the Maori leaders use this, use their tattoo design to sign treaties, and they would draw very precise replicas of their moko. And I assume the moko is the tattoo Right, itself? the facial tattoo. Okay. Mm-hmm. And since we're mentioning Maori, <laughs> in the recent Disney movie coming out, Mona, uh, which looks, it looks good. It looks good. We're going to take the kids to see it. Let's, don't but, get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Someone misstepped. <laughs> A smidge. A smidge and released a Halloween costume. Oh, this is so bad. It had like colored hosiery attached to tint you may orient color. With tribal tattoos. With tribal tattoos. Yeah. 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 It's 2016. It's 2016. Yeah. Well, just a little while back, Nike had to pull a line of leggings and sports bras that were inspired by Samoan tribal tattoos. That's very interesting. They pulled the whole line? Well, they had to. The, there was huge public outrage. Well, that's a symbol that's very much earned within that culture. All of these are. Yeah. You know, that's an important aspect of this is these are very personal tattoos. They tell your story. They tell who you are. They tell about your family, your rank, your accomplishments. You can't just throw some fucking leggings on. And take them off. That's the most insulting part. It's like, oh, for this run's length, I shall be Samoan. And tell this story. And listen to T-Swift. Oh my god, T-Swift. I love her. At least they pulled them. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. 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 <laughs> and so, as Western culture and time moves on, there's not much mention of tattoos throughout history. It is very relegated to sailors. Sailor Jerry. He has rum and tattoos. Sailors would return from voyages with them. You know, mm-hmm. when they went to these areas, they would also work as identifiers. So a lot of times American sailors would be conscripted into the British military. Okay. And first they tried to stop this by like creating a little kind of 
passport ID cards mm-hmm. for the people. But it'd be like, you know, brown hair, brown eyes, white dude. And white dude, was, technical term. Yes. And so the British would just try to find as many brown haired, brown eyed guys as possible. Okay. And so they started tattooing themselves as identifiers. There's even some evidence in America that tattooing was popular during the Civil War. Okay, what kind of tattoos were going on then? So they were very political. <laughs> of course they were. Okay. Symbols of allegiance. You know, historians just wonder why. Why was this popular? And the idea is that it's like you have to identify yourself. You have to say, I am from the South and I support states' rights. Uh, you know how i feel about that shit so yeah because your enemy is literally exactly like you they are american you are american well you're confederate but you're whatever you know you're both you have the same lineage you can't tell yourself from your enemy right there are no distinguishing characteristics so let's make some exactly and you know as you like to read and talk about the kind of turn of the century like the 1880s and stuff you have your criminologists oh were they doing phrenology and things well they were doing cryptography oh my goodness on these on these symbols these indelible marks that people make on their body right in france and italy they were very interested in this in these bodily inscriptions and they saw these as like physical indicators to criminality so if you're willing to get a tattoo you must be crazy enough to be a criminal kind of okay perceived by the state as evidence of a crime of being a criminal that's crazy. So you could be like, oh, wow, obviously. She was a prostitute. She had a tattoo by her privy parts. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> but it's interesting that it's like that idea has been around for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. But an interesting thing happened. Uh, it's so often they do. Around that time period. And in England and the United States and throughout Europe, there was a little bit of a, a tattoo fad, a little tattoo craze. Are you telling me... Are you, wait, wait. Okay, so the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. So back when people were kind of being hipsters, if you look at what hipsters actually do, there was a tattoo fad? Yes. <laughs> okay. Handlebar mustaches and tattoos. Jesus Christ. Okay, history is going to repeat itself forever. This was a very upper crust, fashionable society. Who were participating in this tattoo fad? Um, Everybody. Everybody. You know, you still had the working class people getting tattoos, but this upper crust was suddenly getting tattoos too. And this includes people like English King Edward VII. No. George V. No. King Frederick IX of Denmark. I bet he was badass. He was. There's a great image of him with his shirt off with like all of his badass tattoos. And he's like, got his arms crossed looking like. That is so Vladimir Putin. Hey, you know who else had it? Who else had it? Tsar Nicholas II. Oh my gosh. Tsar Nicholas was in on the trend. You think he had his daughter's faces tattooed on him? Yes, I think he had his daughter's faces tattooed on him. But interestingly enough, this did line up with the creation of the electric tattoo machine. Do you think that's why these people were willing to have it done? Well, it became a little easier, a little more Mm -hmm, accessible. mm -hmm. Sam O'Reilly is who is credited with it. He designed it off of Edison's 1876 stencil pen and... This guy also was able to build up on this craze. He was able to get some investors. And he was able to bring over Japanese master Hori Chio um, and gave him $12,000 a year. That is an incredible salary at this time. To come over to New York. He had a New York millionaire pay for it. 
to practice in America. And he had two other Japanese tattoo artists that were brought as well. So Sam O'Reilly is American despite his very Irish sounding name. There are a lot of Irish Americans, Samantha. <laughs> I was just making sure we were talking about Britain a second ago in the British Isles and things of that nature. So he's American. He's in New York City and he brings over a Japanese master to teach him how to to, right, to learn tattoo. from learn from the art. And he was also able to publicize that. He was publicizing his new electric tattoo machine. Twitter would have blown up. This guy would have broken the internet. <laughs> he, he was selling his machine. He was also selling stencil designs and sheets along with it. Flash. He was selling flash. Flash tattoos. Yeah. Of Japanese designs. Okay. Sound familiar? So were there a lot of like society people getting Japanese symbols that they had no idea what they actually meant? Yes. Oh my God. Okay. Barbie. Barbie with tattoos of Japanese symbols that she doesn't understand. Great. This is what there's a long proud tradition. Who knew? Right. This is this idea is over a century old. And it stems from the beginning of the like modern industrial era. But how they use them was very different than how it was used by the more working class people getting tattoos. Within the upper echelons of society. Right. They were getting this as kind of a symbol of their worldliness. Mm. They were there to impress people. Mm. To where the more working class people were getting them based on their, their personal experience or their characteristics. They wanted to express who they were. They weren't just trying to build this false identity of worldliness and, oh, I've traveled all over the world and I have a Japanese tattoo. Right. It was like the equivalent of bringing back, I don't know, I always think about my sister who actually studied like interior decorating for a while and she had this Japanese lamp in her home with like this very intricate Japanese design on it and it didn't go with anything else in her house. And I asked her about it one day and she says, well, traditionally very well decorated homes belonging to very wealthy people would incorporate something from the Orient. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But also actually very accurate. I know. I know. Because they used to use like the wallpaper, Mm -hmm. the Oriental wallpaper. Um, Back in the day, like if you go to Mount Vernon, Mm -hmm. you'll see the like Oriental wallpaper, Mm -hmm. as they would call it. (laughs) No, you can still call wallpaper Oriental. You just can't call people that. Okay. I learned that in Mass Communications 2000 with Larry Snipe. So it must be true. Thanks for the clarification. I'll stop calling people Oriental. Thanks. Good. Good job. Good job. Like my grandmother. (laughs) My grandmother does not, but I know people's grandparents that do. Yeah. And then as time goes by, you start to have, we talked about earlier, those tattooed ladies and freak shows. You know, tattoos were also very common among soldiers, and they started as being like self-identifiers, but then became like a little more vulgar, and, and people started to not really want to display them. When you say a little more vulgar. Naked ladies. You don't say. But that movement, that American return to normalcy after World War II in the 50s, really rejected these tattoos. They rejected anything that brought up that idea of World War II. So just any reminder of World War II? Right, we're moving on. And there's some people that say also some of the aversion in tattoos was their popularity, not their popularity, their use in Holocaust camps as well. And that gave them a very negative connotation. So that's another instance where you have people being forcibly tattooed, like you were talking about earlier with Roman prisoners. And it's really one of those very readily recognized 
marks that people had been through this horror and this hell. And why would you want to co-opt that? Why would you want to appropriate it? I guess is sort of the sentiment that's driving that thought process. Yeah, I definitely think that it's a valid, valid point. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm going to do a little superheroing right now. But like, I can't help but think about X-Men when Magneto is like at a we are bad mutants meeting. And the guy comes up to me. He's like, where's your mark, dude? Because they all have this mutant tattoo. And he's like, I got my mark years ago. And shows him his Holocaust tattoo. Because Ian McKellen's a badass. And it's amazing. It's a great scene. But they did. They got their mark years ago. And there will always be that association, I think, in, a, in the imagination between the two. Especially at that time. No, definitely. And, you, you know, but as, t- as time goes on again... <laughs> Time keeps moving. Does it? It does. Oh, and in the 60s and 70s, you have that huge counterculture movement that we talk about a lot. And tattooing kind of comes back in. But it's very it's very isolated. It's isolated to that counterculture. So hippies kind of? Hippies and then the punk movement. Uh, punks really. love some tattoos. Yes. But as you may have noticed, living in Austin, Texas. Yes, we does, as we do. There are a few people with tattoos. <laughs> I've seen a couple. Like one or two. One or two. Every once in a while, you'll see a tattooed lady. Or 17. Or all of them. But tattooing has become a huge fad. Dare we say ubiquitous. There was a recent Pew Research study showing that four in ten millennials have at least one tattoo. And we are among them. We are. Before we continue... What's yes. your tattoo? I have a tattoo that says premium non nocere, which is the first line of the Hippocratic Oath. And I got it whenever I graduated medical school. What is your tattoo? <laughs> so I, I, have a, I, have, I have the bat signal. A bat? I, I do. I have, a I have a bat signal. And like, like Batman? Like Batman. And uh, it's, um, it's on my ass. It's on my ass, Jacob. <laughs> You're gonna tell the world. I'm telling the world. No, I got it because I was my mother hates tattoos. She's always been like, What are they gonna look like when you're eighty? And I was like, Let me do this. Let me do this one and make sure that I want it and make sure that I can live with it in a place that's not visible and let me contemplate on what people's reactions will be when they see it. And I was like, This is always funny. This is funny. Literally forever like if i'm a 90 year old woman in a morgue and the guy rolls me over to like move me from slab to slab and he sees my saggy batman ass tattoo he will laugh his ass off and it's it's amazing to me that's such such a great part of the tattoo but that is not the only reason you got it (laughs) no no i i uh spent a lot of my time blogging and writing about comics coloring comics editing comics and my end-all, be-all comic was Year One, which is a Batman story heavily featuring Jim Gordon. And after I'd spent a year of my life dedicated to comic book culture, I decided that I wanted to commemorate that time by having that symbol put on my body because it's a, a symbol of analysis and thought and seeing what's not readily apparent. And I think that there's a lot of that in what I do still. Looking beyond the surface of things, kind of that great detective idea, and I, I do. I have I have a bat signal on my ass. Confession time. Yeah. Okay. 
But you do see just the, the normalization of tattoos. So many people have tattoos now, especially if you live somewhere like Austin or Brooklyn or Chicago, LA, you know, these Portland. Portland. These large metropolitan areas where you have a lot of millennials and a lot of educated millennials. Mm-hmm. And you've seen an equalization of the sexes. And actually, some studies show that more women are getting tattooed than men now. And Margot Mifflin, who is actually the author of that blue tattoo book that I mentioned earlier, as well as Bodies of Subversion, A Secret History of Women and Tattoo, states that tattoos appeal to contemporary women both as emblems of empowerment in an era of feminist gains and as badges of self-determination. At a time when controversies about abortion rights, date rape, and sexual harassment have made them think hard about who controls their bodies and why. And with that, I say, Margot Mifflin, you're a badass. Margot Mifflin does not have tattoos. (laughs) Margot Mifflin is a badass. I know, but I just think it's funny. She mentions it. I just think it's interesting that she doesn't have any. How do you study this for so long and not get a tattoo? Because how would you ever decide where you wanted to start? Well, that's always my problem. It's like, I want more tattoos. I just cannot decide what to get. I know what I want. I just get distracted when we're supposed to go. (laughs) But you see it everywhere. You see celebrities with it. You see it on TV. You see it on reality TV. You have to wonder, you know, why are so many people getting tattoos and what the function of those tattoos are. You know, we talked about a lot of uses of tattoos in the past. And Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to look at the, the ideas of like, why? Why are people getting tattoos now? So the current participants in this trend kind of cite four main reasons for getting tattoos. The first of those is ritual, because society today really lacks any form of organized or systematized ritual or rite of passage for people moving from one life phase to another outside of religion. And as society is becoming more secular, we're looking for ways to kind of express that we've transitioned from one phase of life to another. And so this gives us an outlet for that. This gives us a ritual, a permanent, indelible mark on our bodies that we have phased from one portion of life to another okay so that that's my tattoo that's your tattoo it is the second reason that people might get tattooed is identification by inscribing established symbols on the body the tattoo is identifying himself or herself as part of a group groups can be as broad as like your nationality like american or very very specific like you can write your partner's name on you which is a horrible plan don't do that (laughs) One tattoo artist is talking about how he will try as hard as possible to talk people out of that. We've been together for six months and I really like him. He just gets me, you know? Well, it was interesting because he was like, I mean, he basically described a story like that. But he was like, I also don't want to get the reputation of someone that would do that. Mm-hmm. So what is the reputation of someone that would do that? That's interesting. It is interesting. And another reason that's cited is that people want something to be protective, something to protect them in some way. And that's a very old idea. But there's one story relayed by Sanders in 1989 in which a man came into a tattoo parlor and asked to have a bee tattooed on his arm. And as the artist was working on it, he told him that he was allergic to bees and he'd been stung so many times that the physician that he saw believed that the next time he was stung could be his last. And so he felt like he needed protection against bees. He got a bee? He got to a big himself Yes. It's very literal. It must have been British. He was trying to make sure that bees were frightened 
and we would not sting him again. I got stung by a bee yesterday on my hand, and it was horrible. So maybe I need a tattoo. And the last use that's described in this set of uses is decorative. Embellishments. Tattoos are often associated with exhibitionism because it's literally putting your body on display, marking it up and making people look at it. But while they are decorative, people have an equally profound desire to be able to conceal them. Right. You can want to like reveal it and show that you have this beautiful artwork on your arm and this like identifies who you are. Or you can have this really deep personal connection with it. Maybe you have like your grandmother's name written and that's not necessarily something you want everyone to see and it has meaning to you personally and so you kind of want to conceal it a little more yeah because like my tattoo it does not get shown off in everyday life but it's like it gives me a great amount of personal satisfaction to know that i have that on my body mine's very hidden (laughs) and there's of course that ritual of getting the tattoo you know, it's been seen that it has become kind of a peer activity. About 64% of tattooees go into the shop to get their tattoo with family and friends, which we both did. Yeah, we did. Hi, Adrian. <laughs> but the act of tattooing, to go back to Mifflin's point, it suggests this degree of agency. You know, you can wear an outfit, you can wear clothes, and that can say something about you, but you can also just take those clothes off. You can toss them. Like the Samoan leggings? Yeah, your Jinko jeans. Oh, God, I didn't have those. Did I you never have... actually did. Never. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad I married a man who well, does it. I was like it. 11 when it was popular. Oh, Garrett had Jinkos. I know, a lot of my friends, yeah. Yeah, I thought they were stupid, yeah, even then. Okay. But this becomes part of you. It's not just consumerism it's not this mass-produced item it's something that you choose it's something that has meaning to you it's something you might collaborate with an artist to get an idea and it's something that that artist then has to produce produce on your skin there's something so interesting about the idea of that, about the idea of like taking your meaningful life event or your image that you want projected on your skin forever and taking it to someone and like them going away into their little cubby hole or whatever they do and sitting with your story for a while. You know, you come in with your story. You come in with like, this is a portrait I want of my grandfather. He fought in World War II and he was really important to me. And so I want this combination of a purple heart, these jackets. Japanese islands and if you could do this like partial portrait of one of his eyes that looks like mine and da, 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 come in with this and you take your grandfather and his story and you hand it to this artist and they go away and they take all the elements and they put them together and they come up with an original design and they come back to you and you say that's perfect put it on me forever as an artist I can't really imagine anything being more lasting or important than that. Yeah, there's such a collaboration. There's such an engagement in the actual act of getting a tattoo. And then you you have to suffer through it. You know, you go through the pain. I slept through my tattoo. Okay. Some people more than others. <laughs> so what I described earlier, like the story of your grandfather and you come in with that. That's a very specific thing. And you're asking someone to design something especially for you. But that doesn't mean that tattoos that are taken off the flash wall are any less unique. You could have the same tattoo artist tattoo the same design on three different bodies in three different places and they would look completely different because the actual landscape of the human body plays into a tattoo so much 
And depending on skin tone and placement and size of the image, everything varies. Everything changes. And so it is a completely unique talisman that you're seeking out from an artist. Right. And even if you did just get this Japanese tattoo symbol off the wall, it means something to you. Even if it, what it really means might be something different. Whatever you're getting says something about you. It not only becomes a part of your body, but it becomes a part of your self. It becomes a part of your self-identity. And it expresses how you feel about something. It expresses a life event. And this kind of brings us to the idea of a really interesting field of study called body lore. Body lore. Tell me more. Well, so this term was coined by Catherine Young. Young? Like J-U-N-G? No. Oh. So Catherine Young just has this really interesting idea about the body and the body being as an invented thing, as more of a cultural artifact than a natural object. Well, I mean, I can't disagree because, like, when I'm thinking about artifacts, when I hear that word, I hear, like, archaeologists, Indiana Jones, off discovering things and piecing together ancient civilizations in my head. And I think about the bodies you've described that they found, like, of the the whore mummy. Whore mummy. The whore mummy. Boulder Dash in Egypt. And of the prominent female figure in the South American culture and of Otzi and... These are literal artifacts. We are able to learn about these cultures through the markings on these people. So aren't they? Well, I think they can be. And if you look at it from more of a personal perspective, Mm -hmm. or even like from a modern cultural perspective, you can see that. And she describes something called inscription. It's kind of the, the idea, the gesture of invention. And that can be literal or figurative. And it just shows that you bear the insignia of that culture. Okay, well that can be very metaphorical then. When we talk about the body, we use a system of metaphors or kind of disembodied idioms, sayings, just sort of offhanded turns of phrase. Euphemisms. Euphemisms, yes. Always euphemisms, especially in the South. But the way that we talk about the body in this indirect way sort of delimits its use. And the way that we embody our culture is to project our culture through our bodies. It's a very reflexive relationship. We signify to others through our physical attachment or internalization of these cultural symbols that they are part of us and we are using them to designate our identity and our autonomy within the whole. Right, how we display ourselves, how we hold ourselves, how we do things like tattooing but even to simple things like how we dress shows our culture shows the society that we want to be a part of right and it's not just our culture and society but it's an individual identity that can come through dress and self-presentation right you want to show how you fit into things so how you see yourself you're coding So we may take these ideas of culture and embody them in very temporary ways, such as wearing all black today or whatever to go with our dark lipstick. So we might inscribe our culture on our body in a more indelible way. We might permanently mark our place or our beliefs in something that's a little bit more difficult to take off than a pair of Samoan leggings. We do things like this through tattoo, through piercing, through altering our body, through electrolysis, through plastic surgery, 
through any variety of means, but we own our bodies and we mark our ownership and our allegiances through what we do to them. Right. We're able to choose that. We're able to choose how we present ourselves. That's true. And so there are very temporary ways that might be considered like bodily practice. And that can be anything from mannerism to ritual and taboo, myths that change how we conceive and experience ourselves and others. You can think about this kind of inscription as a sort of permanent body language, a sort of permanent attitude that elicits a response from the viewer. And it elicits the response that you want. There's a lot of self-determination in the practice of inscribing the body. Very rarely in this day and age is this done to you against your will. It might be done to you on spring break when you've had a few too many, but you'll always remember that terrible decision you made with your friends in Mexico. And that tattoo you got of the sun around your navel which literally one of my ER attendings had, swear to God, got on spring break when he was drunk. He, 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 he. he. So important, he. He, <laughs> I, I have actually seen it. It still tells your story. That's part of your history. That's part of who you are. You're a silly mistake that we, we made with friends on spring break. You're graduating from medical school. You are Batman on your ass. You're whatever, but you're telling people that. And there is a huge amount of agency and self-determination and self-presentation wrapped up in that. And I think that one of the reasons that people are so keen to be tattooed today is because it is really one of the most independent, self-determinate acts that one can make. It's such an expression of who you believe yourself to be. And somehow the ritual of having that image inscribed on you makes it real. Right, something like tattoos or these other types of bodily modification are ways that we can appropriate the body. You know, we're not necessarily all that different, and you can look very much like somebody that is in a different kind of social group than you are. And without some sort of inscription, whether that be a more temporary one, such as how you dress or how you shave or the makeup you wear or whether it be tattooing, you are ascribing yourself to that group. Well, like when I talk about tattoos, because I listen to so much true crime and read so much true crime, all I can think about is like the officers coming to the house, talk to the mom about the daughter who's missing and going, does she have any, you know, defining characteristics, birthmarks, tattoos? I imagine my missing persons flyer. It's like with a large Batman tattoo on her ass or whatever. And it's like these marks are as important as the birthmark you have. These marks are what will separate you from the other five foot two and a half Jane Doe's in the morgue. Like a permanent mark that identifies you. Like it's so indelible. And it's to me, it's so interesting that this is such a pervasive part of cultures is this kind of body lore, this body modification or attempting to modify the body or present the body in different ways to either represent beauty or status or fertility or so many other things. Are you talking about that whole mummy again? Whole mummy. Whole mummy. Status or lack thereof. I mean, like, it's... There's something really brilliant about this idea of people tattooing their body because they couldn't have the beautiful kimono to me. And I think that you'll see a lot of that, like people kind of making up for losses or deficiencies in other areas through 
compensating through kind of modifying their body. And one example of that is foot binding in China. It was first seen among the court dancers of the Tiang dynasty. And as soon as it was seen, it became all the rage, all the rage. So when girls were young, their toes were broken and wrapped with binding cloth in order to prevent them from growing. Families would do it mostly to their eldest daughter in order to improve their chances for marriage. Normal size feet symbolize the ability to work. Well, we saw a fantastic exhibit about this at the Field Museum. A few we years did. Ago. We did. Yeah. And these teeny tiny little slippers. I mean, they were itsy bitsy little slippers. Interestingly, in the folk story of Mulan, when she comes home after her great conquest, her repayment for her time spent out warring for her nation is actually having her feet shrunk down to appropriate size to be marriageable. I did not know that. That was not in the Disney movie. Oh, no, it's not in the Disney movie. There was an Eddie Murphy dragon. There, Well, in all the great movies, there are Eddie Murphy dragons or donkeys or whatever. I still think Eddie Murphy Raw is funny. <laughs> it is. It is. Ice cream! You meant them ice cream. I got you ice cream. <laughs> so another example of bygone beauty practices, things that are way out of the realm of possibility or common practice now, the practice of lacquering teeth with black lacquer, which was popular in Japan through the Majai era. Married women used lacquered dye on their teeth, and they would rub teeth with a rind of a pomegranate and apply the dye of iron filings and gall nuts of the Japanese sumac tree. And they would repeat this every three days in order to ensure that their teeth were properly blackened. Yeah, and if you had just regular old white teeth, that meant you were single. Whore? <laughs> Japanese whore, mummy? What? Balderdash. I'm back. <laughs> but in medieval England, there were a variety of odd beauty practices. For example... At that time, people would pluck their hairlines, pull out hairs on their head one by one in order to give them that desirable five head look. Ah, the five head. The five head. It's like a forehead, but bigger. Far superior. Far superior. That's what they said. Very literal. But in England, during the Elizabethan era, it was popular to do white lead facials. That gave women an aristocratic paleness. That nice tuberculosis look. Oh, no, that's later. Later still. That was the Victorian era. But yes, the aristocratic, I've never spent a day in the sun working, don't be ridiculous, look. So what they would do is apply powder with white lead, calcium carbonate, and hydroxide. It was really healthy and benefited all the women greatly. Very good for you. But, you know, they were dying in childbirth anyway, so really, what was the harm? Also in Elizabethan England, they would use lead and quicklime and sulfur and water to dye hair red. And even up until the Victorian era, they were using arsenic soap to whiten the complexion. Mm, As we talked about in our Dress to Kill episode. Women wore these outrageous wigs that were made like of wood frames and put together with lard and attracted rats. They would put boats and birds and feathers and things in them. They're ridiculous looking. Very Rococo, see Marie Antoinette for details. And also corsets. Corsets are weird. The fact that corseting was a thing is weird. The fact that everyone did it is weird. Weird. How did that happen for so long? That sounds like another episode. Oh my God. We're going to do an episode on corsets. And then in the early 20th century, 
especially in America, we have science. Science! Science is beauty and beauty is science. And so we've talked about like the diets and sanatoriums and our You Are What You Eat episode. But you know, all these great snake oil salesmen and inventors. Oh, they had more for the populace than just diet and exercise. Don't be ridiculous. Pish posh. Pish posh. We have a dimple machine. Dimple machine. This was invented by Isabel Gilbert in 1936, and it was like a chin strap with spring-loaded knobs that pushed into the cheeks to cause a dimple-like impression. So what you're telling me is Isabel was a bit of a sadist. And a few other choice... Inventions from the time period include Professor Mac's chin reducer and beautifier. Oh, well, what did Professor Mac have for us? Want to quote his advertisement? His advertisement? Uh, yes. Well, no, it was in America. American, so it was an advertisement for sure. It is the only mechanism producing a concentrated, continuous massage of the chin and neck, dispelling flabbiness of the neck oh, well. and throat, restoring a rounded contour to thin, scrawny necks and faces. Price? Only $10. What better investment could be made? I don't know. I want one today. And if you call now for the low price of $19.95, we'll include it. No, I'm adding things. No, it's, it's only $10. But you get the dimple machine. I was going to say you get the dimple machine. Oh, you have an awesome neck and dimples? Oh my God, you'd be the hottest girl ever. Wait, wait. You'd almost be the hottest girl ever, but you've got to do something about that snout. Ugh. The schnoz. Schnoz. It's ridiculous. So you could buy the nose shaper. And as advertised, you will find the world in general is judging you greatly, if not wholly by your looks. Therefore, it pays to look your best at all times. Permit no one to see you looking otherwise. It will injure your welfare. Okay, so I just want to tell you before you come over tonight, I'm wearing my my dimple machine, my chin shaper, and my nose fixing machine. So we can't make out or anything, but we can totally Netflix and chill. (laughs) Don't judge me. The whole world is judging me greatly. This is going to injure your welfare. Okay. I know. That's why I'm wearing all these contraptions. Bring me the laudanum. Now we're going to have a good time. (laughs) Oh, but you know, as I've been paying so much attention to my nose and my chin and my dimples, I've completely overlooked my skin. I've decided to order Radior. Radior. Radior, a day cream possessing radioactive properties. Radioactive properties? Yes, it clears the skin in a magical way. And the complexion grows lighter, smoother, and more refined. I'll be positively glowing, you see. Does it have radium in it? Yes, it has radium in it. My jaw's going to fall off and I might die. But I look fabulous. So right, radium is a radioactive compound that was used Mm -hmm. as a beauty product right terrible decision people also used to radiate the face to cure acne and led to lots of thyroid cancer (laughs) sounds like poor planning and bad decisions which is what we americans are famous for all right and then you also have things like mm, plastic surgery which is still kind of you know a thing right something that definitely is still around today and it's been around for actually a very long time but you know I have to say that I do believe the rate of plastic surgery among the young portion of the population is decreasing. And I think that the statistics would support that 
conclusion. When we were in college, it was like the heyday of young, young people, like 18-year-olds getting plastic surgery. Okay, I think. Maybe I'm blindly optimistic, which would be a first, but I, I feel like that's decreasing a little bit. And there are so many traditions of body modifications around the world and some that are still present today. Well, one thing I notice is like piercings. Piercings are definitely still a thing. Like even the most respectable of women can have one hole in each ear. Well, you also see, especially around here, a lot of people like nose piercings. Well, I have a nose piercing. Oh, I know. I see it right now. <laughs> it's literally like three inches from my face. Okay, well, fine. Fine. Yes, I have a nose piercing. My mother freaked out about my nose piercing. My dad actually said, I had sent you down there to university and all you learned to do was put a hole in your nose so people could lead you around like a damn bull charming it's not a septum piercing dad god but yeah so my parents really hate any kind of bottom body modification uh, apparently right but you know, the idea of piercings has just been throughout cultures throughout millennia nose piercings are related to hinduism you've seen earlobe stretching like we see people with gauged earrings mm-hmm. yeah, king tut had it King Tut had gauges. Yeah. He's a badass. He's badass. And I heard his lady had some tattoos, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mummy whore. And it was, it was something that was practiced in ancient Egypt. What would Freud say about a mummy whore? <laughs> Tell so, me about your mummy. <laughs> you know, even in Roman times, you saw nipple piercings. Really? Something that I think is really interesting are the more extreme forms of body modification that are really relegated to certain tribes where it really does mark your membership in a certain group. And so when I think about tribal body mod, I think about giraffe neck women. In Burma? In Burma. Right, the Cayenne culture in Thailand and Burma wear these kind of brass rings around their neck to make their necks look longer. It's kind of a beautification. You know, they can sometimes be called the giraffe-necked women. As they were by Cyril Bertram Mills. Our most recent episode of Audio Museum. Is about Cyril Bertram Mills and his greatest find and discovery for the Bertram Mills Circus, earliest at least, was the giraffe neck women of Burma that he brought back to England to showcase. And I remember looking through a National Geographic with my grandmother when I was a girl and her telling me that if they ever took those rings off, they wouldn't be able to hold their heads up. I don't think that's true. It is. Really? Really. No, it actually is true. Okay. You do see teeth filing seen among many cultures such as the aborigines of australia which stood for kind of spiritual reasons the mayans did this to distinguish between class those that filed their teeth were of the upper class and even in the congo you would see it as a gender identifier based on which teeth were filed and then you have the art of the lip plug among the mercy tribe in ethiopia a female's beauty is judged by the size of her lip plug. And that's the culture that still does it. It's actually been found that it was done throughout Africa, Europe, the kind of northern regions where they were doing lip plugging. But this is the tribe that still does it. Right. And this was done by having young girls place plugs into their lips when they were very, very young. And they would slowly increase the size of the plug until the lip was stretched to a surprising degree. 
Women have to be careful not to increase the size of plugs too quickly, as someone with a broken lip will never find a husband. It's thought that this tradition began as a way to avoid having women stolen during raids by other tribes, as their members would not find the modified women attractive. That's interesting. It's kind of like tattooing on someone's head, because it marks ownership. Oh. And you do have the ideas of skull binding, which I always have found very interesting. And that would be done when people were really young. Before the plates of their skull fuse, correct? Right. And this is done throughout the world. You see Native American tribes and South American tribes. You know, some of the most famous or well-known are like in Peru. And this has been practiced for 9,000 years. It was also done among the Egyptians. True. And... They even think they might ha- might have been done by the Neanderthals. That is so interesting. No wonder we think aliens have heads shaped like that. Or no wonder the aliens told us to shape their heads like that. That's right, Crystal Skull. Ah. And there's the idea of like body painting and, and henna, which is very popular, of course, in India. But it's also popular among... Muslim women, especially in Africa, where it's kind of replaced the idea of tattooing because tattooing is no-noed by the Quran. Oh, is that the technical term? Yes. Okay. So now they do henna for these specific life events such as marriage and childbirth. So sort of these moments when you're in sort of a liminal passage state. Yes, definitely. Where you need to be seen from one phase to another. And to mark your transition, I would assume. Right, it would. And it would mark that you are ready for this. And it, there's some really interesting writing about henna, kind of showing that it's it's very much such a women's role, and such in the women's sphere. And they will have other times where they'll just do it kind of almost for fun or to, like, to quote, to make themselves happy. It's like a manicure. Yeah. No, it really is. Huh. Like, and so women will get together and they'll... Henna them, henna each other, and talk, and have this kind of social gathering. And again, this is another thing that's been socially appropriated by the Barbies of the world. Very true. I went on my cruise and got my henna tattoo. Yeah, girl. All right, guys, and that's where we're gonna wrap it today. Come back in the next few days, and we will have part two of our special one-year anniversary episode. Right, we're gonna keep the party going. Woo! And we're going to talk about tattoos and social media and how and how a raven is like a writing desk or how a tattoo is like a Facebook post or a tweet. And you'll get to find out if this is all just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.